back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Hey, Reed. Hey, Rick. Thanks for coming. So, guys, we are actually in person today, so I am actually not more than six feet away from the famous Rick Wilson. So glad to see you. The the infamous. (laughs) So Rick, today we're going to talk about the January 6th select committee that started this week and specifically the first day where we saw, I think, extremely compelling testimony from police officers. And I want to take, you know, a minute to go over how the committee came to be before we get going. So first and foremost, we should remember that for probably, what, two, three months, there was an argument about a bipartisan sort of 9-11 style commission that would take a look at this. And, you know, Republicans kept playing Lucy in the football, right? Mitch McConnell, McCarthy said they want to get the bottom of this, they want to get the bottom of this. And then every time it would come up, they would say, no, sorry, this isn't going to be fair. This isn't going to be fair. Everyone has to wear a green hat or we can't do this commission. Right. All the craziness. Yeah. And so what we saw then was something that we don't really, frankly, see out of Democrats very much, which was Nancy Pelosi saying, no, we're going to do this. I'm going to appoint a select committee to do it. And there's going to be more Democrats than Republicans, which Republicans freaked out about, though they never seemed to be bothered about that when the topic was Benghazi. Correct. And so Pelosi puts Democratic members on the panel. She also puts Liz Cheney on the panel. Kevin McCarthy responds. He puts five of his own members, three of them, are full-on seditionists, including Jim Banks from Indiana and no less than Jim Jordan, G-Y-M, Jim Jordan from Ohio, on the panel. In response, Pelosi pulls two of them. She pulls Banks and Jim Jordan off, which moaning and wailing, lots of gnashing of teeth and tearing of clothes, and McCarthy says, this is not fair. I'm not going to have any of my guys on this panel. Well, I mean, look, everything about the Republican methodology for approaching this panel and anything else now should be viewed through the lens of their like performative professional wrestling kayfabe okay Mm -hmm. this is a stunt for them this is a a way to get coverage on fox this is a way to run the hamster wheel of fundraising emails which jim jordan the minute he was taken off launched a fundraising email saying nancy pelosi's trying to cancel me but the reality of this situation is very simple the republicans dread this commission They did everything they could to either stop it, dilute it, poison it, remove any hope of sanity from it, or to put on people like Jordan, who would simply eat up the scenery every day and ask ridiculous questions like, was it Antifa that did this? How many of these people do you think were Black Lives Matter terrorists? How can you tell me that it wasn't Antifa? Correct. I don't see any reports that it wasn't Antifa. Therefore, it was Antifa. So they were fundamentally unserious about it. They view it as an important stunt because their audience has to be kept in a bubble. They have to be sealed in this bubble of irreality at all times. They have to be told that Donald Trump won the election and the people that came to the Capitol were loving tourists who were hugging and kissing people. None of that is true, but they cannot afford publicly facing camera-friendly events that the public could possibly see beyond the Fox bubble. I will tell you, Reed, I I thought the first day of testimony from the police officers, from the Metro PD and the Capitol Police officers, including Officer Dunn, who recounted the absolutely horrific racial slurs and attacks that were made to him and other African-American officers, I think it tells you a lot about the Republican Party as it really exists today. Bannon had this rule that he taught Trump, and the rule was 
no enemies to the right. No matter how crazy they were, if they were going to be generally with you, bring them in. And so that's why Trump ended up embracing the alt-right and a lot of these racially motivated crazy people. The Confederate flag. The Confederate flag people, the militia people, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Charlottesville people, the good people on both sides, because he had no enemies to the right. And a lot of our old friends in D.C. who were very comfortable consultants were like, ha ha, those rubes, we'll just milk them for money. We'll raise money off them and they'll be part of the coalition. At the end of it, we'll just go take a shower and pretend it never happened. Well, now all of our old friends understand something. It's the edge cases. It's the crazies. It's the racists. It's the clans people. It's the proud boys. Those people are now the core of the GOP. They are the centerpiece. They are the strike force. They are the shock troops of Donald Trump's authoritarian party. And there are a lot of people who've realized this, that now, if you're a Republican in Congress, you are defending a group of people who stood in front of African-American cops and yelled the N-word in their face. So, Rob, to illustrate Rick's point, why don't we play the testimony of Officer Dunn and how he was treated by the tourists on January 6th? One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This never voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, No one had ever, ever called me a while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. And so, you know, just to take one quick step back, Rick, before we even heard from the officers on Tuesday, Kevin McCarthy said that they were going to do their own investigation of what happened on January 6th, which is a little bit like Jared Kushner putting someone inside the Trump campaign to figure out who stole the money when it was Jared Kushner. When it was Jared Kushner. (laughs) You know, apparently OJ is not very busy right now. I'm sure he's going to help Kevin get to the bottom of who the real rioters were. It's so laughable. But I do think you saw yesterday a lot of performance art from these guys, you know, Gates and Green and Elise Stefanik. And by the way, folks, don't think that people like Elise Stefanik, because she's in a leadership role, has not fully embraced the same poisons and crazy medicine that Banks and Jordan and Gates and Green and Boebert and the rest have been you know, mainlining. They are all out there saying, oh, these are political prisoners of a fascist Biden regime. They're trying to project back all of their darkness onto you know, what happened that day. Which, as we know, as our friend Trigvi tells us, when authoritarian regimes see something that's working negatively against them, yep. they turn that around and attempt to call their opposition that's right. the same thing. That's right. And that's, you know, classic Bannon, and it's classic Lenin. And it also helps to always understand that the Republican Party today is a revolutionary party. It's a Leninist revolutionary party. And for all that they scream, communism, communism, they are running... You know, if you translate it into English, Lenin would go, oh, yeah, I get it. That's the playbook. Right. That's what I'm doing. Because it's about burning things down. Right. It's about destroying institutions and rebuilding them in a way that your cronies, your kleptocratic allies, your friends get to benefit from. And that is what's going to happen here, folks. If the Republicans, if they win two more elections, we're in a world of shit because they'll just start passing laws at a clip that will wire down the battlefield of voting in their behalf. It will restructure the economy where companies that don't toe the line are economically punished and regulatory punishment is meted out to them. And finally, you know, Reed, I think it's really important to look at these people because they have a huge ally on their side, and that's Washington's establishment media. 
those folks in D.C. who write stories, the Saliza type of coverage, well, both sides do that. No. I said this on the breakdown on Tuesday night. It's not both sides. Cut that both sides shit out. One side wants to burn down the country for power and money. One side may be comprised of people who can't organize a two-car motorcade and who can't get their shit together and are terrible at elections and have a million bad ideas, <laughs> but at least they're not trying to destroy America. Right. So that's where we're at with the Democrats. We don't have to agree with everything they want to do. We can argue about parts per billion of carbon in the atmosphere or how many days you should have to not water your lawn, whatever. All those things are trivial. They're meaningless when it's a choice between that and the republic. I was thinking about this the other day. First, you know, on the Stefanik front, we should note, too, that she has taken on Trumpian levels of mendacity. Oh, God. Um, before the hearing started, she said the insurrection of January 6th was Nancy Pelosi's fault and that, you know, if she had called in the National Guard, you know, maybe none of this had happened. Of course, willfully Correct. misleading her viewers to understand that the National Guard reports to who? The executive yeah. branch, who would be, in that case, Donald right. Trump. And who, who had stacked the Pentagon where they would have activated the National Guard, and we've seen some of the stories coming out, with a bunch of Trump yahoos who were going to slow roll the process of deploying those troops no matter what happened. Well, and there was a memo that they had released that said, here are the 10 things you're not allowed to do, not the things that you should do, the things you're not allowed right. to do. And it was ultimately Mike Pence, I guess, in defense of his own life, <laughs> who yeah. called the Pentagon and said, get those guys over here. When you read the coverage of that moment in the Rucker and Carol Lenning book, and he's afraid to get in this Secret Service limo. He's afraid to move from that room. He knows those people are out there because let me tell you one thing about Mike Pence. I, I have no love for Mike Pence, but Mike Pence has been around these MAGAs. He's seen them. He's been to these rallies as the wingman to Donald Trump. He knows who these people are, and he knows that they're just a scintilla of civility is between them and stringing Mike Pence up by a rope. And brave police officers leading people in the wrong direction. Officer Goodman, who was yelling at them and yelling insults at them, dragging them away from Mitt Romney and other senators. I mean, that's an audience that wouldn't recognize every member. They'd recognize Romney. They would have killed him right then and there. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes Steve Schmidt, one of our co-founders, talks about the one minute in Gettysburg that right. the first Minnesota held back the South. And that was the difference between winning the Civil War for the Union or Robert E. Lee marching on Washington, D.C. And in the literal embodiment of one person, Officer Goodman was that first Minnesota. He was that one minute between the difference between dead senators and a dead vice president yep. and a dead republic. And here we get to sit today having this conversation. Well, and I mean, one of the things that the Trump right has been on for the last couple of days is who killed Ashley Babbitt? Well, you know, she was trying to crawl through a window into the speaker's outer chamber where the speaker and other members were sheltering in place. That was not a crowd of friends. That was not a crowd of tourists. That was not a crowd of people coming in. She was following orders. And if the Republicans want to know who killed Ashley Babbitt, Donald Trump killed Ashley Babbitt. Donald Trump sent her. The World Trade Center didn't kill the 9-11 terrorists who flew into it. Bin Laden killed them. And by the way, just to jump into another thing, we've had a lot of criticism from the far right that we talked about the fact that while 9-11 was the worst planned terrorist attack, the one that succeeded, the one that was executed, was ordered by an American president. And the movement he is directing from his supervillain lair in Mar-a-Lago is still alive and is still growing. And I want to just be clear to people, our old Republican friends, 
you guys are riding this train till the end if you stay with this. You're going to be until the very last minute thinking you'll be the one who can ride the tiger. You know, my grandmother's phrase, she used to say, you can throw that alligator or fried chicken off the end of the dock, but when you run out of fried chicken, that alligator's coming for you. Words to live by. Truly indeed. A classic, exotic, southern eccentric. And she had many, many phrases of that caliber. But that is what a lot of these consultants think. But, you know, that's the one thing, too, though, that gets really overshadowed or has been overshadowed so far about the people who came to Washington, D.C. and who conducted this insurrection was that most of them were upper middle class white people. These were people who some took private jets. A lot of people made their way there. They stayed in hotels. They stayed at Airbnbs. They found their way. They wore thousands of dollars worth of tactical gear. These were not down on their luck, economically oppressed people who once worked in a coal mine that shut down. These were people who had the ways and means to make their way to Washington, D.C., to carry out the types of tactics that would do this. Look, you don't walk into an insurrection with a bunch of zip ties around your waist because you think you're not going to use them. So these are people who came with intent and with a mission. And I think the one thing to your point about why Republicans are now going crazy about this is because they know, and I was talking to someone earlier today about this, Donald Trump may not be able to plan anything other than getting dressed in the morning. That might be the sum total of his cognitive ability from a planning perspective. But the Republican Party, as we came up in it, the conservative movement, as we came up on it, has always Full been of planners. highly organized, uh-huh. highly dedicated, well-resourced, absolutely able to communicate across different lines, across different entities no to make things happen. No doubt. So Trump incited, somebody else planned it. I've talked about this at length. None of this happens without money and organization. And there was at least $3 million paid out of the Trump super PAC to a variety of groups for Stop the Steal, including groups that were run by Roger Stone, Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander, whatever his name is this week. Charlie Kirk, these people were given resources. They were given marching orders. And if you know Roger Stone, and if you follow what Roger Stone does, the Capitol attack has Roger Stink all over it, 100%. Remember, Roger has close relationships with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Bikers for Trump and the 3% assholes. And we will run it back. They will do a big forensic analysis of all the phone traffic, of all the Trump people. And I think something yesterday that happened that it hasn't even sunk in with most folks yet, the Department of Justice came right out and they said in the suit that Swalwell brought against Mo Brooks, who was one of the main people to incite the violence, they said, we're not going to defend you under Westfall. Federal government presumes normally under the Westfall doctrine that federal employees, including members of Congress, the president, are protected from civil lawsuits. Those lawsuits are treated as a lawsuit against the government. Therefore, the DOJ defends them. DOJ said, get the fuck out of here. No. Well, and they said specifically that in the context of standing behind that podium on the mall that day, that Mo Brooks was not operating in his capacity as a member of Congress, but as a politician. Correct. A distinction that should not be lost here. And by the way, one of the interesting things in the ruling, they said Congressman Brooks or any other federal employee at that rally, does not enjoy the Westfall protections. That includes Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump has a $75 million float in his super PAC right now, which he's told his donors he's going to be raising that money to fight these legal battles. He has spent zero on that. 
I predict a lot of that money is about to get incinerated with very expensive lawyers trying to keep him off the witness stand. I mean, at that time, too, Jared Kushner would have been a, a federal employee. Absol Ivanka Trump Ivanka would have been was a an federal employee. employee. So this extends into the Trump family circle. Oh, yeah. And as much as the Trumps want to retcon this and rewrite history, because there's a classic trope in any D.C. book, the I was the only one that knew what to do. They wouldn't listen to me. So when you see Ivanka and Jared and Jason Miller in these books, like I told Trump to make a statement to stop the violence. Bullshit. <laughs> Absolute horseshit. There's no chance they were letting it play out because Donald was loving it. Let me turn to the good Republicans. And near as I can tell, at least in the U.S. House of Representatives, that number is down to two. Pretty much. So one thing we, we skipped over was that when Kevin McCarthy pulled his five goons off the committee, that left Liz Cheney as the only Republican. And in short order, Nancy Pelosi added Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Illinois as a second Republican. So this is a bipartisan committee, whether or not anybody believes they now call them Pelosi Republicans, right? They're still registered Republicans. Rob, why don't we play Congressman Kinzinger's remarks from the first day? You guys may like individually feel a little broken. You guys all talk about the effects you have to deal with. And, you know, you talk about the impact of that day. But you guys won. You guys held. You know, democracies are not defined by our bad days. We're defined by how we come back from bad days, how we take accountability for that. And for all the overheated rhetoric surrounding this committee, our mission is very simple. It's to find the truth, and it's to ensure accountability. So, Rick, one thing that Cheney said, she might have said it on CNN or she might have said it in a print interview, is that there are a lot of her colleagues in the U.S. House that say, I wish I could do this. Thank you for doing this. I'm having a hard time fathoming the cowardice. There is an expectation among many Republicans that because of history and redistricting, that Kevin McCarthy will be speaker again <laughs> in January. And they are calculating that they want their committee assignments because at the end of the day, politicians crave approval and they crave stability and they crave normality. And even if things are evil and wrong and fucked up, they crave that sense of continuity. When it first started, in 2016 and 17, about two-thirds of the Republican caucus were anti-Trump. They're like, oh, my God, what the fuck happened? They thought Paul Ryan would lead them into a posture where they could fight back against Trump's excesses and they could get good policy out of him and it wouldn't be like a trip down a log flume in hell. Well, they were wrong. So by 18, about half of those people had quit. They either gave up or they resigned or they ran half-ass races in 18 and lost. After that, it was fully embedded in the brains of Republicans that unless you're full-on with Trump, you will lose. It's a rare case where the non-Trump candidate wins. So they are afraid of Trump. They're afraid of Kevin as the hand of Trump. And they still nurture in their minds that they can have it both ways. Oh, yeah, I disagree with this and this and this and this, but, you know, I've got to do it for the base. But going back to what you said about the media and even many Democrats, is that there's still this weird whisper in their head that some normalcy exists, that somehow 
A, if Republicans won in 2022, and B, that you take the leap that Kevin McCarthy would actually be speaker, and that C, in that context, somehow there would be normal order. There would be some sort of regular order. Because let's be clear, remember that Donald Trump said when McCarthy went to bend the knee yet again or kiss the ass, whatever it is, in Bedminster, that Trump said, yeah, if you guys win, I want to be speaker, which, of course, we know that the Constitution doesn't have any provision for who could actually be elected speaker that doesn't require you to be a member of Congress. Correct. Put it to a vote in the House. Guess what they're going to do? It'll be Donald Trump, the speaker, with every single Republican voting for Donald Trump, including Kevin McCarthy. And then Kevin McCarthy hoping to be majority leader or the Trump whisperer as Speaker of the House right. deciding who gets committees and Trump being like, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but like, no, you're out. You can sit over there and yeah. I'm going to put all these other guys in charge because right. they're really with me, Kevin, because I remember what you said about me on January 6th. He will never give that shit up. And that's one thing where Republicans thought that they could go back to normal, too. They said, OK, well, if I make a statement that is critical of him about this one issue, it covers up the papers over everything else I've done to protect him. There are guys who think, oh, well, I made a statement. Then you voted to exonerate him. And as we saw also this week, also in Texas, that there's nothing more than Donald Trump loves oh. than shoving the knife into people who he really never liked, i.e. with George P. Bush, Jeb Bush's son, George W. Bush's nephew. Now, I worked for the Bush family for a long as time. We, yep. Yeah. So like, I don't even know what the word is to describe what he's become. But he became his worst self and the literal embodiment of Rick Wilson's everything Trump touches dies. <laughs> he truly did. And, and I got to say, look, I love Jeb and I worked for his dad and they have been a family, agree or disagree with them on you know, some policy issues. They have been a family that is long engaged in public service. What blows me away is there's no one in that family left who could say to George P., are you fucking kidding, bro? He's going to destroy you. He hates the Bushes. He literally insulted Bush 41 when he was lying in state. Trump was in tweeting insulting shit about him. He insulted the guy's own mother yeah. during a debate. Yeah. These people hate the Bushes. The Trump people hate the Bushes. And I'll tell you the other reason. Jared Navanka, the reason they hate the Bushes is because the Bushes actually came from WASP royalty. And they came from noblesse oblige and a background of public service and deference and graciousness. Which the family still demonstrates to this day. Absolutely. Put it this way. The Trumps are always going to be from Queens and the Kushners are always going to be from Jersey. Yeah. Well, and Ivanka Trump is always going to have the revolting crassness and horror of her father hovering over her for her whole life. She can't escape it. So that's why... It was absolutely inevitable the moment that George P. went and kissed the ring. And I guess he went to Mar-a-Lago, maybe went to bed. I can't remember. But he has that horrible grip and grin picture with Trump. And I looked at it when it came out and I thought, he's going to screw this guy so hard. He's going to talk about Paxton. And sure enough, at that TPUSA rally two weeks ago, he's like, Ken Paxton, Ken Paxton, Ken Paxton, Ken Paxton. I was like, oh, it's coming. It's well, gonna, right, because remember, Paxton coming. led the ridiculous Supreme Court thing right. for him during the transition. Yep. And, you know, I mean, George P. even had these koozies made, you know, with with Bush, with excuse me, with Trump at the podium yep. and, and P. standing there next to him. Yep. I mean, for someone who's known that guy since I was probably 20 years sure. old. Sure. Right. Like, I think everyone of us in that world always saw him as the next generation. Yeah. 
what, of course, we didn't see was how quickly the world and the party would change and that he was trying to do this in Texas where the party has gone off. I mean, when Alan West is your chairman and he's too crazy for you. Right. In the, in the counterfactual world where Marco Rubio won the 2016 election, George P. would be a rising star. He'd be an inevitable successor. He'd be presidential material in training. He would be traveling the country, meeting people, raising money, making the connections you need to do a national campaign. But instead, he is now. He is now the outgoing land commissioner of the state of Texas. Correct. (laughs) And the Bushes, when they lose elected office, they go into real estate for a while. They make some money. God bless him. I wish him well. But you drank the poison and you should have known what the side effect was going to be. No. So let's wrap this up. So, Rick, this committee is going to continue. Republicans are going to get worse because they are now under enormous pressure because now all this stuff is going to come out. This committee has subpoena power, right? You must take an oath. We saw the police, which I thought was a masterful move on their part to really set the emotional tone. On day two, they had Andrew Clyde, who said these people look like tourists, and Jamie Raskin all over him. And what we saw was classic, like, you know, where Republicans always say, you know, it's not about the context. It's about what you said. Now, Clyde is like, no, look exactly what I said in that picture. They looked like, which is not what he meant. But now he's scared to death because he's sitting up there. Well, by the way, I think Raskin is just a boss in these things. Yeah, he's got an edge to him and he's got a kind of intellectual approach to it that I think is necessary here. We've got a more aggressive posture in this committee that I think is very valuable to getting to the bottom of the causation of one sex. So we're going to see some members of Congress. It'll be interesting to see whether or not some Republican members of Congress, whether or not it's a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Kevin McCarthy himself, if they defy the subpoena, I don't believe that they will because they can't help themselves, right? Maybe they won't be called. Who knows? Maybe other evidence will be introduced related to them. Let me ask you this. You and I have both been staffers in Washington, in administrations, in campaigns. What's going to happen when those people who worked at the staff level within the Trump organization, within the PACs, within the Republican Attorneys General Association, what's going to happen when they're sitting up there at the witness table now well, and being asked questions? They're going to discover the hideous costs of D.C. attorneys <laughs> because, right. you know, when John Smith at the Labor Department, Trump GS-13, is on the phone with his friends scheming to do something related to one six, he's like, okay, I'm fine. I'm in the administration. Nobody's ever going to know. Well, they're going to get the phone records. They're going to drill down. And this is just a hypothetical, of course. Let's say he was in touch with Roger Stone, or let's say somebody in the White House was in touch with Roger Stone, like Mark Meadows. Well, we know that there's a woman named Carolyn Wren, who's been a Republican fundraiser forever, whose name has come back. And she is the money sluice from the super PAC to these guys. So she's sitting up there. What's she going to do? Well, she's thinking to herself, oh, my God, this guy's costing me 1200 bucks an hour, first off. And she's petrified. And they will realize that as scared as they are of Trump, that perjury carries a cost. Yeah, it's called federal prison. And the Department of Justice is sending a very sharp signal that fuck around time is over. And I think you're going to end up with some of these people. You will see some of them break. You will see some of them try to do the false nobility thing. I've realized the error of my ways. Now, the electeds, if you put Boebert or Gates, everybody looks at Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think Boebert's more corrosive in some ways. I think she would go up there and just go into the full Colorado Karen mode 
I'd want to speak to the manager. I hate you. You know, you're all cucks. But it will peel back a layer of how that ecosystem works in the minds of American voters. Don't you think on some level both McCarthy and McConnell are scared to death of that? Absolutely. I think Mitch McConnell, who loves nothing more than power, he recognizes that being in the majority isn't like half the thing. It's all the thing. And as Senate Majority Leader, he needs to get a bunch of moderate Republicans onto these ballots across the country this year to win that. The difficulty he's going to have is this is going to fire up the crazies and Trump, and they're going to be out there in the states. Like right now in Ohio, Josh Mandel, the least likable person in politics, which is saying a lot. Yeah, especially because he's running against J.D. Vance. Oh, right, against J.D. Vance, who is the, the second runner-up, right? right? He's saying that J.D. Vance isn't hard enough on protecting the one-six political prisoners and blah, blah, blah. Like, come on. The one thing McConnell and McCarthy want out of this is for it to end as quickly as possible, which is why I hope the speaker recognizes that this could make excellent Christmas viewing. Drag it. Drag it out. Pull it. Do what Republicans did with Benghazi. They spent 800 hours of committee hearings over two and a half years torturing Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration. I just want to go back to this witness piece for a second. Do you believe any of them will take the fifth? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Roger Stone will take the fifth. Ali Akbar will take the fifth. Charlie Kirk will take the fifth. And I think Carolyn Wren is more of like a normal D.C. person. She'll break. They'll break her. But a lot of these guys, they will look at it as a piece of performance art. And, you know, we'll allow you to go into the lab and do the things that you do. Yes. They will give me hours and hours of delicious material. Well, Rick, first and foremost, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Good to see you in person, Great to be able to do this in person. Before we get to signing off, so, guys, I just started listening to one of the latest Trump books called Landslide by Mm, Michael Wolff. mm -hmm. If you are an Audible fan, you have to listen to it because listening to it, it makes it even more unbelievable than if you read it. And then there's also, frankly, we did win this election by Michael Bender. And I Alone Can Fix This by Carol Lenning and Philip Rucker. Guys, there is some very fascinating and horrifying and scary contemporaneous, you know, what was happening in these rooms. And it reminds you, as Wolf said in his book, that Trump is crazy. He has an incredible instinct for his people, but this is not a well-adjusted individual. And the people that he surrounds himself with, it's just a continuation of the reality distortion field that emanates from the guy. All right, so Rick, where can everybody find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on Twitter. I am occasionally at the Rick Wilson on Instagram. And other than that, I try to stay off the Facebook. Amen. I'm not even on Facebook. And as always, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. As we have asked before, before we sign off here, if you are listening to this and you are dedicated to the pro-democracy cause, sign up, lincolnproject.us. As Joe Trippi, our latest senior advisor, says, find that one more person, that friend, that family member, that colleague, that person you know who cares about this stuff. Get them to sign up. Join the coalition. Help us do the work. It will make all the difference. All this stuff, guys, as Rick likes to say, matters on the margins. These are battles of small numbers, ultimately. So with that, everybody, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. 
don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.